Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Emmett Penny, promoter of a nuclear energy, writer, podcaster, and Bitcoiner. We talk about nuclear energy, the actual risks and consequences, and enormous benefits. Emmett also tells us about his background as a leftist, his disgust with Malthusianism, and what he sees as the optimistic philosophical alternative. Emmett Penny, how's everything going? It's going great, man. Happy to be here. Yeah. Where in the world are you right now? I am in Los Angeles. Okay. And yeah, that's kind of an interesting place to be at the moment, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah. Uh, There's certainly a lot of restrictions in California and stuff. Everyone here in Texas makes fun of you Californians. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt. My dad lives in Alpine. Okay. And yeah, I mean... It's got to be kind of crazy over there. But hey, like, regardless of where you are, I brought you on because you are an expert on all things nuclear. So I am very curious. First of all, how the heck did you get into an industry this complicated and crazy? Yeah. But well, to be clear, I am like industry adjacent. And also, there's not really like a nuclear industry per se, but we can get into that later, at least not in the United States, right? So. Yeah, God. You know, it's funny. I just launched a new newsletter and podcast called Nuclear Barbarians. And for the first time, I really like in the first episode, which came out this morning, I sort of tell the story of how this happened because I'm like a two liberal arts degree haver. (laughs) You know, like I did not expect to end up here. None of this was in my like life path bingo, you know, when I was in my (laughs) 20s. I mainly wanted to do two things in college and that was drink and write poetry. And I did as much of that as I could stand. (laughs) And then after I left college, I chased a girl down to North Florida and I was really, really broke, like working three jobs and like staying just above the poverty line. And that was like a real education and I don't know, just how people struggle. Hmm. you know, and how I was struggling. And it really changed the way I looked at the world. And I got sort of like left-wing radicalized by that experience. I think that's like pretty common. Like you work enough horrible jobs for like a while and you're like, this is uh, like, maybe we should do things differently, (laughs) Um, you know? And I just kept, it gave me all sorts of questions becoming radicalized, but I worked so much that I couldn't really like spend time on it. You know, I was like a bouncer at a nightclub. I was a personal trainer and I worked at a supplement store. Right. So I was doing, it doesn't give you a whole lot of time to investigate things that are going on. After that, I lucked into a job, believe it or not, writing common core curriculum for the state (laughs) of New York, which I hated by the way. Uh Uh I I don't want to get into how that sausage gets made because it's too off topic, but uh, it's bad. Let me tell you, I'm sure your listeners don't need me to tell them that. And the thing that that afforded me though, is like the first time I had any financial breathing room or free time. So I started reading a lot. I started reading, I read like Marx's Capital Volume 1. I started looking into all this stuff and I was living in a small town in Vermont at that time Mm. and, you know, fell into some radical circles. So it just kept going and going. And then I had this moment where I was like, I don't know if these ideas are correct or if I just think they're correct. This job I'm doing is winding down. I have some financial time. I am also totally burnt out. I am going to go to like a pretty sleepy, pretty mellow master's program at St. John's College in New Mexico Mm. because I want to read the Western canon, right? Like, To me, I saw people like Marx as people who were in like a tradition of thinking. And so I couldn't understand what he was saying unless I knew who he was talking to and sort of the ideas he was operating under. So I went out there. While I'm out there, you know, 2016 rolls around. That's sort of this inflection point. I was a big Bernie guy back then. And Standing Rock happens. Now, I'm friends with this what standing rock sorry yeah so standing rock 
there was the Dakota Access Pipeline, right? An oil pipeline that was going to go through some tribal lands without the tribe's permission. I forget what state this was in, but it was a big deal. And you can imagine sort of repressive state entities that roll out to that and even some like repressive corporate entities that roll out to that. And it was, they set up, the activists set up basically like a camp to block the pipeline, right? Mm. And the imagery that comes out of it is like really powerful. If if people have forgotten or have never heard of this, you should go check it out because it's, it was an inflection point. I think for a lot of people and what standing rock did is it created a bunch of spinoff things, right? So I had a friend in grad school, let's call him Jay. Jay was a former special forces guy who had been deployed during the surge in Iraq. And it really, really fucked him up. There's no other way to put it. And it totally changed his outlook on, life and politics. And he was even more radical than me. And he got an invite from somebody because he kept driving up to Standing Rock to go out to like right around Marfa, Texas. Right. Cause you're in Austin, right, Jimmy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mar- out by Marfa, the Trans-Pecos pipeline mm. was getting laid out there and society of native nations, another indigenous group sort of had their own pop-up camp where they were going to do some activism. I don't think anybody had hopes of stopping the pipeline because it was like nearing the end of construction. But I went out there and I remember it was a very transformative experience for me. I wanted to write on it, right? I wanted to, I was, I was starting to write for like lefty publications. I thought I could write something about this and while I was out there, there was like a monkey wrench thing that happened. Somebody got lockboxed to a bulldozer. Mm. That was surprising. But there was this moment where I started to have some serious doubts about the way the left looked at energy and infrastructure. And it, here, here's what happened. So how these camps tended to be able to stay, to exist for more than like a couple weeks is that they had Facebook groups and they would post on their Facebook groups, Hey, we need these supplies if anybody wants to donate them. So every once in a while at the camp, somebody would show up with a bunch of stuff. And this guy shows up with a trunk full of stuff. I was a smoker at the time and he even brought cartons of cigarettes and I was like thrilled. That was like Christmas to me. And we unload it and it's like meat. It's all the stuff that needs to be refrigerated. Right. And we have some stuff we put in a cold hole in the ground to keep fresh. Other things we need to keep buying ice, you know, like we have to figure out how to live out there. And the guy drives away. He's like, here's the stuff I got to go buy. And I remember unloading with one of the guys at the camp and he says, if only people knew that we could live out here like this, then the whole world would be better. And I remember looking around at all of the food that needed refrigeration. The guy needed to get there on his car. We had to post something on Facebook, which needs all sorts of infrastructure to stay alive. And I was like, what the fuck are we talking about? (laughs) I was like, what is this? But, you know, I'm there with a bunch of indigenous people who have honestly been brutalized by corporations in the state. And it's hard not to feel like you're on the side of the good guys when you're doing that. I'm not saying they're bad guys. It's not a binary, right? But I'm saying that sort of my assumptions and how do I want to say this? It would be very taboo for me to have turned around, called myself a lefty, and then basically been like, I don't know if this is like a real political thing to do. So what does that have to do with my activism in nuclear? Well, I started to get all these doubts and I didn't know where to put them. And it started to make it harder and harder for me to like understand things like the Green New Deal or whatever. And I didn't even know what questions to ask, but I had grievous doubts and no one seemed capable of addressing them. And then I wrote a piece for Paste Magazine called Lecture Porn, The Vulgar Art of Liberal Narcissism. And I got a DM from a guy named Michael Schellenberger who runs a, an, a pro-nuclear environmental think tank in Berkeley, California. 
And he slides into my DMs and he says, I loved your piece. Do you have time to talk? And I was so broke that my phone had shattered and I couldn't replace it. And I was working at a bookstore. So I gave him the bookstore's number. And he's like, cool, I'll call you in five minutes. So I immediately got the guy from the shipping section of the store to cover the front for me. And I proceeded for the next 90 minutes to have this conversation with Michael while I pretended to fill out an order from Penguin Random House so I wouldn't get in trouble with my boss. And he invited me to consider nuclear. He thought I was a talented writer and a smart guy, which is very flattering. I'm a doubting Thomas. I was like, yeah, I don't know. Nuclear seems like bad to me, but I hear what you're saying. I don't know. And he was like, well, he's like, why don't you just like come fly out? Come fly out, Berkeley, and we'll see what's up. He's like, in the meantime, you should read this book by another lefty named Lee Phillips called Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse Porn Addicts. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll read this book. And I start reading this book, and this guy, Lee, who's now my friend, starts laying out how industry and infrastructure work, how to think of energy and energy density, why nuclear is this amazing carbon-free thing that is actually extremely safe. And it really starts to change my mind. And I start to feel more and more alienated from the left because before I go out to Berkeley, I am a delegate at the Democratic Socialists of America's National Convention in 2017. And I go to the eco-socialist working group and everyone there is like, we need to close all the nuclear. And I'm like, okay, I don't think we're having real conversations here or like, I don't know what conversation to have. I fly out to Berkeley. Michael introduces me to his staff. Many of them are my friends now. And I see all, they show me all sorts of data. I'll just, just like tons more information than my brain had ever fit into it before. And it totally changed my life and my perspective. Michael thought that he and I might work together on something. Uh, that didn't happen, and that was fine. I went back to my bookstore life. But then a couple years later, I had a job totally fall apart. Michael and I had maintained a friendship. And I called him, and I said, look, man, I need a job. Do you have one for me? Mm. And he said, yeah, I'm about to write a book. And that is the book that came out last year called Apocalypse Never. It's a bestseller. Mm-hmm. And working on that changed my life. And it told, it made me feel like very politically homeless. You know, Michael and I don't see everything exactly the same way, but we agree on the fundamentals. And those fundamentals are in that book. And as I watched COVID roll out last year, I realized that all sorts of things were missing, certain state capacities. It was like nobody had been minding the shop, right? <laughs> It was like, okay, we can't make basic things. Everybody has been saying for years that these supply chains are too thin and they're vulnerable to shocks and a shock has come. And all these experts are now saying, well, if we just make the shock stop happening, then it'll all be fine. And I'm like, I don't believe this. I don't believe the way that we've been fragilizing our electricity grid with lots of renewables and stuff like this. I was like, okay, I feel a civic duty to defend nuclear, to defend our electricity grid. I'm going to do something about it. And by the time I finished consulting with Michael on his second book, which came out a couple days ago, actually, uh, San Francisco, uh, (laughs) Why Progressives Ruin Cities, I wanted to launch my own thing because I had my own perspective on nuclear based around like civic virtue and not environmentalism because to me environmentalism is like almost a type of class war by another name it's usually an elite project and it is often largely anti-human and i wanted to bring to bear some of the things i've learned by teaching the great books and by for my other podcast exhaust which is about why nothing feels possible it's sort of the opposite side of the coin of nuclear barbarians which is very positive I wanted to bring bear some of the deep research we've done on like supply chains and cultural trends and stuff like that to fill what I see as a gap in the nuclear advocacy space. So that's the long version. <laughs> well, there's so much to cover there, but basically you were radicalized into the left having worked some of these jobs that maybe weren't paid very well, you felt pretty exploited, and then you found a home with 
sort of like the, you know, Bernie bros or whatever. And then you you started questioning things as you saw sort of the radicalization or the radical nature of their dialogue and really how you didn't rationally think through anything. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, I think some of it. Well, I think some of it I had thought through. Right. And a lot of that had to do with like, I still believe in unions. I still mm-hmm. believe in that the working class could be incredibly powerful, that, you know, they've been given a raw deal mm-hmm. in America. I still believe all of those things. Mm-hmm. But there were certain just like industrial realities, engineering realities that the left just does not want to engage with. They do not want to have a substantive conversation about it. And then it became clear to me, especially over 2020, that I don't really think the left has a desire for society to continue. And I just don't think that's a good tack to take, A, if you want to win over political constituents, but B, if you actually want a better world. Mm. Well, so tell me more about that, because you have one set of beliefs, I guess, that can be described leftist, but... You also are kind of like pro-nuclear. You described it as civic virtue, which yeah. which is an interesting way to put it. Can you describe that a little more? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm still working it out. Actually, one of the reasons why I started the podcast is so that I could have conversations with maybe different like philosophers and stuff as well to tease some of these ideas out because I'm learning as much as anyone else is. But here's the way I look at it. Right, we're born into sus into society. Right, we get some things we like, we get some things we don't like, but we get some traditions, we get some ways of being, and the way it works is you try to conserve some of the things are good that are good, improve some of the things that you think are bad if you can, and then you pass it down to the next generation. Mm. Right, to me, I see a lot of things implied in that. Right, we would need ethics of honor. We would need ethics of respect. We would need ethics of duty, right? That is our job to take responsibility for these things so that we can then hand them down. Mm. And when I think of civic virtue, I think of that. And I don't think that this is such a radical idea historically. I think that we would just call that society. But I think we've entered a strange cultural space where those ideas are even mocked. The idea that you would try to make things better for the future, is that what you're saying? Is mocked? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I would say, so again, this is me coming from the left, right? Like uh-huh. people are like, I, one of the things that started to drive me insane is people would be like, I hate America. Uh-huh. And I'd be like, yeah, well, you, you fucking live here, man. <laughs> like, at also, like you... Nobody's going to trust you to run anything that you hate. Mm. And they shouldn't. They really shouldn't. Because people's lives depend on this infrastructure and this stuff. We can't just go around breaking things and saying it's for a revolution that nobody really seems organized to bring about anyway. That Mm. just seems like a weird hedonistic nihilism. Mm. Well, that's interesting that you put it as a hedonistic nihilism because – at least philosophically, that's what the left seems to be kind of going towards. It's a it's a very strange sort of like philosophical foundation. And that seems to be something that you're obviously kind of against, maybe, or you're you're thinking a lot more about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say this, like, as I said, while I was telling my story at this point, I feel politically homeless. I could, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I don't know where I fit in. I think a lot of people feel that way mm-hmm. right now. You know, and I'm still sort of piecing it all together. Mm. And, you know, look, like there is, there has always been sort of almost millenarian element Mm. to the left, especially after the French Revolution. But I don't think it has always been so hostile to the idea of posterity. And Mm. I think that. That has changed in America, especially after the 60s. Mm. What do you think happened then? Because that's (laughs) kind of the beginning of this whole anti-nuclear movement, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So 
First of all, I think that there are a whole bunch of lefties that come up through the American university system that, by the way, I grew up around some of them. I grew up around people from the weather underground. Hmm. They're all from like insanely rich families, (laughs) by the way, and they're crazy. And the left is like an intellectual thing, right? Intellectual cultural thing gets decoupled from the American working class who's generally patriotic and anti-communist, understandably. And in the 60s, you really start to see, like a lot of people talk about LBJ's Great Society thing is this like add-on to the New Deal legacy. I don't think that's true. I think it actually totally shifts and shatters it Mm. in all sorts of interesting ways. And one of those ways is that like, it's not really about labor. Mm. Right. It's about turning the state into sort of a treasure box. Mm. Uh, The New Deal had to have other things going on because, like, labor was still a threat. Mm. You know, I'm not saying it was a great deal for labor, and I'm not saying everything that happened in the New Deal was awesome, by the way. What I am saying is that there is a big shift that happens there. And that split between sort of the intellectual cultural left and the labor left is pronounced. And it also means that people really weren't like accountable to like everyday working people, these intellectuals. That actually used to be true. Hmm. Right? Because where would you go to find the left? Well, you wouldn't go to a campus. You'd go to like a union hall. Hmm. So if you're like an academic and you're like trying to get involved with that, you're not like hanging out in the like Marcuse seminar in the 1930s. You're hanging out with like the industrial workers of the world. Hmm. So I think that that's part of what happens there. The anti-nuclear thing, you know, the environmental movement really starts as an elite project with like to stop the Storm King pump storage facility in the Hudson River in the 60s. Hmm. And that's not like lefty. It's just Hmm. like big money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Con Ed wanted that there, that pump storage plant to help because New York was consuming so much electricity and they didn't want to build more generation. They wanted to build more storage Mm. to handle peaks and valleys in the demand. Mm. And a bunch of rich people were like, I think the wires here will ruin my view. Like some of these people (laughs) were like West Point generals. You know what I mean? Like that's not the left. And that environment, eventually the Sierra Club helped them basically go to war with Con Ed for so long that Con Ed was like, fine, we're just not going to build it. Ironically, the 1965 Eastern Interconnection blackout, which was catastrophic, probably could have been avoided or at least substantially mitigated if that plant had been built, if that (laughs) facility had been built, right? The environmental movement starts to become anti-nuclear in the 60s and 70s as more people from the anti-war movement matriculate into the environmental movement. And their equation is that nuclear weapons and civilian nuclear technology are the same. And there's not no reason they think that, right? Because the Atomic Energy Commission in the 50s comes out of the Manhattan Project, Right. Eisenhower had this idea, Atoms for Peace. And you can see this old propaganda photo, which is like a picture, which is like this mushroom cloud. And then there's this hand coming out of it, like an atom. And it's like the idea that, okay, we've made this terrifying Promethean weapon. We've ended this global conflict or we've ended this world war. We need to harness this power towards peaceful ends. And that's part of why they have this equation in their heads and they're like well i'm anti-war i'm anti-military right they all it's like path dependency right they all cut their teeth in anti-vietnam activism and they're like this is this is the same some of the same problems are here and so that's the tack they take and then the 1970s energy crises feels like a real vindication for a lot of these people who are also Malthusians, by the way, they don't want there to be too many people on earth. They're scared. We're going to run out of resources, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, great. We need to degrow our economy. Small (laughs) is beautiful. We need fewer nuclear plants, which could blow up at any moment to kill everyone. We need 
less coal. What we need is soft power generation that is in that is in harmony with nature, and that is like wind and solar, right? Mm. And that's how these things come together. They're highly motivated people, you know. Wow. They, they've closed a lot of nuclear plants. <laughs> wow. So what you're saying then is that it started as this sort of like rich people sort of wanting, like sort of imposing their worldview on the rest of society, something to that effect. I, and it still using, is that, yeah. Using the tools of propaganda to sort of stir up the right, uh, or I guess the left people, leftists to do their bidding, something like that. Yeah, kind of. I more think that there's like a cultural left that gets very involved in like social movements and different pet causes, save the whales, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And over time, those develop into an ossify into like massively funded NGOs. Hmm. And I also think, look, some of the people that were famous in the 60s and 70s and talking about Malthusian degrowth stuff, like Paul Ehrlich, are still around and still respected. Amory Lovins, the guy who comes up with the difference between hard and soft energy generation, he designed Germany's Energiewende in part, right? That was their attempt to get off both nuclear and fossil fuels through a massive renewables build out. Well, anyone who's paying attention to the European energy crisis right now knows just how well that turned out. Hmm. Right. I think people should really take a step back and like understand how much of that 60s left is like just still around. Mm. Right. Bernie's a part of that. John Kerry's a part of that. Mm. Jane Fonda is still a feature in all of these things. She starred in one of the biggest anti nuclear films of all time, The China Syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really in her that you can see that overlap of the anti war, anti nuclear left right because she was very outspoken about the vietnam war Hmm. and so that's how i think it has evolved over time right like when we take a look at like the national natural resources defense council i mean these they have like a nine digit budget Hmm. like they're one of their former presidents is the climate first ever in history climate advisor in this country to the president when you go to the nuclear regulatory public meetings, you log into them online or whatever, it's almost only like anti-nuclear NRDC people who are there advising this institution that oversees our nuclear fleet about how it should think about things. The level of penetration and influence they have is crazy, right? Like Indian Point is a nuclear power plant, was a nuclear power plant in New York that got shut down earlier this year prematurely. And it was the main profitable plant in New York. It got closed and New York's electricity immediately got like 40 something, 46% dirtier, which is crazy, right? Mm. Also, it destroyed the small town of Buchanan, New York, right? Their tax base was something like $6 million. After Indian Point closes, it will be 3 million. They'll never recover. They'll never recover. That that town's just going to be a wasteland now. One of the groups that was really involved with this is a group called Riverkeeper. Riverkeeper has deep financial ties to some of these larger organizations, and that's why they could afford to fight this for so long until they got their way. Until Cuomo, whose dad closed a nuclear plant, felt the need to imitate his father and close Indian Point. And... A group adjacent to Riverkeeper was like anti-fracking action or something like that, which has Mark Ruffalo as its figurehead. And I was like, what the, what the, what is an anti-fracking group doing shutting down a nuclear plant? I was like, this doesn't make any sense. So I went looking into the financials and yet here again, they have financial ties to like the NRDC. Hmm. So there's a lot of financial interest, obviously, and they are having some sort of like a propaganda campaign against nuclear. Let's talk about actual nuclear and yeah. what some of the the big misconceptions are. Why are the people that are against nuclear against nuclear? Like what's their reasoning and what's wrong with their reasoning? Yeah, great question. So I talked a little bit before about the anti-military thing, anti-nuclear weapons 
and conflating nuclear energy with military nuclear. Okay, so we've got that part down. That's part of it. They think that if a plant will explode, it would be like a Hiroshima or Nagasaki. It's not really how plants reactor meltdowns happen, but that's fine. They just don't like understand or appreciate or don't want to understand those details. So that's part of it. Another part of it is like when Chernobyl melted down, it was a huge boon for the movement, right? There was an unauthorized experimental test that happened at Chernobyl. And because they didn't close off like their reactor room, it just spewed meltdown stuff everywhere. They don't build plants like that anymore, by the way, but that's what happened. And the other two reactors at Chernobyl kept running, right? So it was just that that one. But regardless, that scared a lot of people, right? Because people, I think, have this fear of radiation. And I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Radiation, you can't really see it. You hear it mutates things. It's like there's this humming atmospheric dread that comes up when you start talking about radiation. Now, we live on an, a, in a radiated planet, right? Like if you've eaten a banana this year, you've been exposed to more radiation than somebody who's living near a nuclear power plant. Mm. <laughs> but there is something that weirds people out about big industrial projects that have this like allegedly atmospheric bent to them. I haven't totally gotten to the bottom of where that comes from, but there's something there that's happening psychologically. Okay. But let's say you don't have those fears and you don't like nuclear anyway. What would your other rationales be? So part of it might be that we just need to generate less electricity because you think more electricity as it does means more people on the planet and the planet can only have so many people on it. So you're not going to like nuclear for its energy abundance. You have a different set of philosophical and moral assumptions that make you an opponent. Let's say you don't like big government projects. Well, nuclear only really succeeds if it has a, like, basically state-centered assembly line to standardize reactors and churn them out. That is the only way successful nuclear programs are created. So that might be another reason why you're anti-nuclear. You might also be anti-nuclear because you think it's too expensive. There are often cost overruns because there are they are big industrial problems in the United States. Colleague, friend, Alex Epstein, who's a big fossil fuel guy who also likes nuclear, says that nuclear is basically criminalized in America because the regulatory threshold is so high. Like the bike racks have to be meltdown proof. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that type of stuff. And you need like eight different guys to check that out. And you're like, look, we can just do wind and solar faster and cheaper. So we're just going to do that. Like I'm not, I don't want to close any nuclear plants, but I don't want to build any more of them. I just want to do that. So those are some, I think, common responses to that. I'll tack one more on. I think it's tied to the radiation fear thing. You're really freaked out about radioactive waste and stuff like that. I actually think that a lot of those fears basically just come from The Simpsons. (laughs) You know, I love The Simpsons. As my friend Maddie uh, points out, she's over at Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal. She says that um, the only thing the Simpsons got right about nuclear is that a man without without a college education could earn enough money to buy a house and raise three kids and have his wife stay at home on a salary. <laughs> That's the only part that it got right, which is true. So I think that those are the arguments against nuclear. Now, we can talk about a few of those. Some are more interesting than others, but I don't know. Maybe you have some follow-up questions. Maybe you want to go deeper. Yeah. So the big one, I think, is people are scared of the possibility of meltdown, right? There seems to be an inherent fragility to nuclear power plants. I think Fukushima is the big one that people think about now because, I mean, like Three Mile Island and all that other stuff happened a long time ago. But Fukushima with the with the tidal wave and everything else mm-hmm. led to Japan shutting down all of that stuff. And apparently it was you know, like kind of a big disaster. So can you dispel some of those fears a little bit? Like, why isn't it as bad as we think? 
Yeah, I would love to dispel some of those fears. So the first thing I'm going to say is the Japanese government is basically deciding to turn back on all of its nuclear plants Mm. because a lot of that energy was just like replaced with coal and stuff like that. Mm. Right. So, okay, let's take a look at Fukushima. So Fukushima is a really like weird, it's like, it's an earthquake and a tidal wave at the same time. I mean, can you believe that? Mm. That's crazy. So first of all, I'm going to take two images that people always use. One is what looks like a heat map of the Pacific ocean. And you see these things spewing out, all this red spewing out of the ocean. People will say, that's all the radiation coming from Fukushima. It's not. That map was created by NOAA, the oceanography organization. And they were taking a look at things from the tsunami and the way that was changing wave patterns. So it has nothing to do with radiation. The other one is, it's a picture of Fukushima Daiichi, and there's this big explosion. You see this boat shooting water into it, and they say, take a look at this exploding nuclear reactor. Nuclear reactor is fission, not combustion, so it doesn't explode in fireballs. Mm. So that's not what that is. People do die, Mm. right? But none of them die from radiation. What happens is people are scared there's going to be a reactor meltdown because there's a tsunami and an earthquake at the same time. And they make the mistake, the panicked mistake of evacuating people from nearby hospitals and stuff like that. Mm. That's what kills people. There's one person that dies in the plant and they drowned because they got trapped somewhere when the waves come in. Now it's true that you know, the sea barrier walls, all of that stuff weren't high enough. There were mistakes made. But what happens at Fukushima is not this catastrophic radiation event. Mm. It is that there is an earthquake and a tsunami at the same time. So that's what happens there. When we take a look at like, just to, for bonus points, like Three Mile Island, I think some people get hurt or die in traffic evacuating, but no one dies from Three Mile Island and no one gets sick from radiation or anything like that. So what's the difference between the perception that people have of sort of like nuclear power plant, something going wrong versus the actual reality? Like how safe is it? That, that's the real question. I think. The real question is that statistically it is one of the safest ways to create energy we have ever discovered. Hmm. There's going to be risk with any big industrial thing, right? Hmm. Like that's just going to happen, you know, but comparatively to fossil fuels, and I think maybe even wind turbines, I know somebody's crunching the data on this and I don't want to out them or represent their findings before they feel comfortable with publishing. But I think it might be better, safer than even wind. Very, very few people die from nuclear stuff. I, if people live in a state, by the way, where you have a nuclear plant and you live nearby, there's like a visitor center. You should go check it out. Hmm. Like these things are very safely run. You, I think you can like set up a visit and they'll like walk you through the plant. They'll show you where the waste is stored. You can talk to the people who work there. You know, like it'll really humanize the whole experience for you. You know, I think, again, the perception is ultimately really comes out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm. And those were horrific events. And I think people look at the way the government lied and really hurt people in New Mexico doing nuclear weapons testing and in Bikini Atoll that they don't trust big utilities or big government projects that are invested in nuclear. And that is a larger trust gap problem that I want to figure out how to solve. I have a friend who recently helped a PhD student edit their thesis. And the thesis is on how the Ukrainian government won back the public's trust after Chernobyl because nuclear has an 83% approval rate amongst the Ukrainian public today. Mm. So winning back that trust is possible. Mm. Well, besides the trust factor, I don't think people really understand sort of like uh, the benefits of nuclear power, as in 
how much energy does it produce versus mm-hmm. other forms of energy and how and more importantly i think at, at least from a bitcoin standpoint is how steady that energy is because yeah. you can more or less like just you know you have radioactive material you just add fuel and it just keeps going for a very long time with relatively like with coal or something like that it's a lot more fuel required per for energy but with nuclear, it's a lot less. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about like energy and power density here, right? Mm. So energy density is going to be a magnitude, power is going to be a rate, mm. right? Both of those things are important. We're going to take energy density first, right? So let's say you have a Coke can of coal versus a Coke can of uranium, mm. So that coal is going to get you by for like maybe, depending on what you're putting it into, like a few hours a day. Cocaine of uranium can support your entire life as an American. Hmm. That's how much energy is in it, right? That's pretty impressive. Hmm. So when we look at power density, we're talking about how much work you can do over time, right? I think this is what's really important for Bitcoin mining is, as you said, it's really steady and it can just go Mm. right it can just churn out so much energy i think it's something like reactor cores get refueled like every five years Mm. and uranium is really abundant so we're pretty lucky here that we can get all this by the way the russians have what's called a fast breeder reactor that can refire spent nuclear fuel so we've closed the fuel cycle on nuclear as a species that's pretty amazing well, so explain that a little bit. So when you say you're closing the life cycle, you get some waste product after you mm-hmm. use it for nuclear fuel. What happens to that waste product that you can use it again? Right. Yeah. So first of all, it stay, the thing that freaks people out is that uh, they'll say it's like immortally radioactive. And it's true. It does stay radioactive for a really long time. This is the high level waste, right? So this is a small percentage of the waste that comes out of out of nuclear. And in the United States, we store it in what are called dry casks that are monitored by the plant and by their utilities. There have been some attempts to have major storage areas like Yucca Mountain that ended up being a boondoggle. I personally think if we wanted a national storage thing, we should just send it all to Los Alamos, where they have a huge warehouse that can fit all the nuclear fuel we have, and they can process it because they do it all the time. But anyway, so it stays in these dry casks, right? And you're like, well, I don't want all this waste hanging around. It's safe. It's never hurt anyone in its entire history, but I'd rather not have it. And if anything happened, I would also like the opportunity to reuse it, mm. right? Just for, just for stability's sake. Mm. Well, that's what the Russians figured out, how to, figured out how to do. I'm not totally apprised of like the science of like how they figured that out. But the uranium that is left over in that waste, they figured out how to reprocess to generate energy. Mm. And that's amazing to me. So they're recycling the waste product of nuclear power plants for even more power. Is that what you're saying? Yep, exactly. It's not cost effective yet. So like you wouldn't want to run it all the time. But, you know, Russia has experienced lots of deprivation in its history. Right. And I think it came out of that cultural ethic. They're like, we might not be able to maintain all of our supply chains or have all of these things, but we, so we want to be able to use our fuel. And Rosetum, their national nuclear entity, which is the best in the world, top flight, no one is better, figured out how to do that. Hmm. Oh. So uh, essentially, you have all uh, you don't have sort of like the downsides that people typically think of when, with nuclear. It's not a disaster if the plant something goes wrong in the plant, and you don't have these waste products necessarily that you associate with nuclear plants. In fact, you can reuse them, and as uh, sort of like industrial processes get better, you may be able to generate even more energy uh, mm-hmm. from them. And so on, and you can maybe even bake that into the cost of uh, of the nuclear power plant to totally. reprocess those. How much power are we talking about uh, in a typical nuclear power plant? And is there tech? Uh, does it have to be sort of like Simpson style giant nuclear power plant, or are there more options now with smaller ones and so on? 
Right, right. Yeah. So you're talking about SMRs. So I guess we have like some SMRs in the United States, but those are propulsion for submarines and all that stuff is classified. Mm. So we can build SMRs, not necessarily for like utility power, but you know, it's doable. There are lots of SMR companies right now. Some of that stuff I'm excited about. Some of it seems like a little bit of like a uh, long shot, but that's okay. I'm not like anti-SMR, but what I will say is I would rather stick to a technology we have than bet on the technology we don't get. Hmm. What well, we do have it, it's just classified, right? Like, well, and it's for propulsion, and it's for propulsion, yeah. right? Which, which, which is different. Um, so, yeah, the utility stuff we, we don't have yet. But I mean, look, like if you're like a less populated area, or you're like an island nation that's small, an SMR would be great for you. Mm. You know, and I hope oh, so. France is dedicating some stuff to some SMRs right now. I hope they figure that out. That would be really exciting. People have a lot of hopes for the modularity of advanced nuclear, these small, small modular reactors. Yeah. Mm. Right. You could just like, sort of like Lego stack them on each other. Right. Mm -hmm. If you decided you needed more, we'll see. I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if that would be a less complicated engineering process than the big reactors. That's sort of how they advertise it. But like I said, we haven't really pulled that off yet. So it's Mm. hard to say, you know, we're talking about how much energy nuclear plants churn out. I mean, God, man, it's so much. So my friend, Maddie, again, did the Byron and Dresden plants were under threat in Illinois. So she wanted to crunch some numbers. And what she found out was that those two plants created so much energy and such cheap electricity that without spending all the money California has spent on its renewables build out, Illinois had a cleaner grid and lower electricity costs than California. California spent tens of billions of dollars. Hmm. Right. So that's, that's one comparison. Another way to think about it is like this. I call this Bryce's law. This is what my friend Robert Bryce likes to say. The lower the energy density, the greater the resource intensity. So here's how we can think about that. Hmm. Think about it like land, right? So my friend Adrian and I did some back-of-the-envelope math. And we were like, nuclear power plants are really small, right? What if we made the entire U.S. run its electricity on nuclear? How much land would that be? That would be a third of the size of Chicago, Hmm. right? based on like 2019 numbers, what would that be for like wind and solar? About 80 to 85% of the size of Ohio. (laughs) And it would be much less stable. It would be very intermittent and so on. Yeah, yeah, very intermittent. Whereas the nuclear would be extremely steady. Yeah, extremely robust. I mean, the intermittency problem, which is very polite way to say unreliable, is the main thing that's going on with wind and solar right now. And it is having deleterious effects on our electrical grids. I mean, here in Texas, you saw what happened in February. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you get this, well, so nuclear is sort of, has been sort of spurned. And I think you quoted Alex Epstein as saying, hey, this is, they're kind of making it illegal. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, as we get sort of like more energy problems, we're we're having California and New York having like random brownouts or blackouts and things like that. Do you think it'll come back or like, is it possible to rehabilitate the image of nuclear? Because uh, in many ways, it's sort of like something that people almost don't want to consider because of all the sort of like imagery around it, like you said, but they they have sort of feelings on it without necessarily knowing the facts. Yeah, exactly. So I do think that there is, unfortunately, this coming energy crisis this winter will make a lot of people reconsider nuclear. The UK is already doing that. France is already doing that. You know, Boris Johnson was just like, we need to build a ton of new reactors by 2035. I mean, we'll see, you know, talk is cheap. So 
I would love to see them do that. I would love to see the UK do that. It would be so good for them and for nuclear. I'd love to see France do that. France has the gold standard nuclear build out in the 70s. And it was in response to the 70s energy crisis. So maybe there's like sort of a crisis to crisis thing happening here. I don't know. But yes, we're learning some very painful lessons. Now, nuclear takes a long time to build. That's another thing people will say. We don't have time. Climate change is going to end the world in 10 years. So we can't do that. (laughs) Apocalypticism is more faith than science, I think. But look, like to stabilize our grid and stuff like that, we will probably just need more fossil fuels for the time being. And we should recommit to building out more nuclear. And that starts with saving the nuclear fleet. So my allies in this were really successful in saving Byron and Dresden in Illinois. We have to save Palisades in Michigan next. We don't know if we'll be able to do that. And we're trying to save Diablo Canyon in California. I think there people will be more motivated to keep these plants after this winter, honestly. I really hope so because energy is like – it is to modern society like what the ledger is to Bitcoin. Mm. it doesn't work without it. Mm. (laughs) Well, that's a very strong statement. How much of the US energy power generation is from nuclear? I think it's like, let me think, it's half of our clean energy and maybe 20% of our electricity energy overall. Okay. So what, what are you anticipating this winter that will cause some sort of crisis? Things are going to get really weird, right? They're going to, so first of all, Oil and gas prices and are so high that combined with inflation, we're looking at maybe seeing heating bills go up by 54% in the United States this winter. Mm. That's insane mm. if that happens. Now, nuclear is not going to provide that heat because it's not thermal. However, it would mean that you would have less, you'd be using fewer fossil fuels to keep your electricity running. So you'd have more of it for that thermal stuff, like heating homes or whatever. What we're seeing in the UK, so here's something people might not know for all of your Texas listeners. The Texas and California grids are based off of the UK grid, Mm. which is this allegedly free wholesale market. That's not what it is. That's what it advertises itself as that really favors volatility because it favors competition. Right, So it's like this auction house where people bid every 5 to 15 minutes to provide electricity to the grid. Right, That's going to be really good for intermittence and mm-hmm. natural gas because natural gas can ramp up and intermittent renewables drop off the grid. So there's a lot of volatility, a lot of energy traders like that. It's not so good for the grid, but hey, you know, mm-hmm. but that works only if like the gas is cheap. Mm. Roger Pilkey, the climate scientist, says basically people will do whatever they can to keep the lights on. No, no climate change ideas will do that. Like, look, for my first episode of my podcast, I talked to Paris Ortiz Wines, who runs the global pro-nuclear event called Stand Up for Nuclear. Nothing exists like it in the world. And she was talking to a Belgian ally, and he said, I would burn the last tree on earth to keep my child warm. Right. So that is the priority, right? Is keeping this going. What we're going to see in Europe is we're going to see likely brownouts, maybe blackouts. We're going to see a huge leap in admissions. We're going to see coal coming back in a big way. We're already seeing that in Germany. And we're going to see an increase in Russian influence in Europe because they've just built the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And like I said, people will do anything to keep the lights on, even surrender their sovereignty. Mm. Right. I think the Dutch are now ceasing creating ammonia, which is going to have huge implications for agriculture because they can't spare the fuel. Mm. You see what I mean? Like this is a system wide problem in the same way that COVID-19 was a real, real hard check on like the just-in-time supply chain assumptions that we've been operating under, and we're still dealing with those problems, by the way, this is going to be a huge check on what we thought we could do with renewables and how we thought we could restructure our electricity grids. Hmm. Well, so let's pivot a little bit to Bitcoin because- Yeah, please. Obviously, there's some synergy here because 
of the steady energy generation of nuclear power. And of course, like the thing that a lot of people don't get is that there are lots of different energy markets and not a single global one, which is why like arguments that Bitcoin uses this much electricity don't make any sense. But you have nuclear power plants and wherever they are, energy tends to be cheap because they're just generating so much of it. How much of that energy gets wasted, right? Like how, how much of it, because they're usually, you know, in any part of the grid, you're always producing for peak demand. So you don't, you know, have catastrophic failures like you did in Texas. How much of it gets wasted and how much could, say, Bitcoin mining benefit from nuclear power? Oh, man, that's a really good question. I want to look into that. I don't actually know how much gets wasted. I know globally, the, you know, all electricity generation, it tends to be around 30 to 35%. Okay? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that uh, sounds right to me. I mean, that's a significant amount that, you know, if you're not using it, and you can sell it cheap to Bitcoin miners, it, at least you're making something and that could definitely make nuclear energy a lot more, you know, a lot easier to make profitable rather than you know, having to waste energy and do all that stuff. So like, is that like a part of any sort of business plan that you could put together that could maybe- So we're starting to see, so what I love about you Bitcoin bros is that you rule. <laughs> You're super enthusiastic. You give a shit about infrastructure, which is huge to me. I love that. I love that. And you understand how important energy is. What we're seeing is I've been seeing these news articles where like a bunch of Bitcoin guys are getting together and being like, how do we broker this deal with nuclear energy? Because we understand the benefits, right? And we want this. So I think right now, people are starting to begin to talk about how that could be part of a business plan. I think as Bitcoin becomes more culturally known and more people have it, and frankly, as nuclear's reputation gets restored, which I really do believe will happen and already is happening, we're going to start to see how those business ideas are going to be renegotiated. And I think they're going to be more powerful because of how much energy nuclear has and more consistent than some of what's going on. Like I have a lot of respect for the great American mining guys Mm. who are doing the gas flare-off stuff in Texas, I believe. I think that's really cool. I'm less compelled by the wind and solar stuff because you never know. It's just too inconsistent to really do good mining, mm. you know. And the risks because of that volatility are just like too high. The gas flare-off stuff makes sense to me, but nuclear is going to be even more reliable than that. And the other thing is the thing that I really want to see is you're right. There's this sort of like cheap shot against Bitcoin for its energy consumption. I mean, first of all. The thing that makes us human beings is that we're willing to take risks and innovate things like Bitcoin, Mm. right? So I don't want to say don't do that because it uses too much energy. I'm against that way of thinking, Mm. right? But what it leads to is people do these cheap shots against Bitcoin where they're just like, oh, they're just cooking the earth for their stupid, like fake money or whatever. And I'm like, no, that's not what's happening here. People are figuring something out and we haven't even yet unlocked its potential and it needs a lot of energy. Like so much of what we have done as a society to figure out what our future is going to be next. So what I hope is that as Bitcoiners and nuclear people start talking, these business deals happen and it crushes that talking point. Hmm. Well, so I I think we're coming back full circle again because this is really a philosophical thing. There is sort of like a mentality difference between the, I guess, what you would call Malthusians Mm -hmm. and the people that are like, okay, well, human prosperity is like energy is good for human prosperity versus energy is bad for the planet or something like that. It's it's a very different focus. Can you talk about that mental shift? Because I think you've been in both camps. Yeah, exactly. So here's the thing about like, we'll call it the degrowth camp, right? Mm. We'll call it the degrowth camp. People are in the degrowth camp without knowing that they're in the degrowth camp, Mm. right? Like I was. That that is just an operating assumption no one really interrogates on the left or like what's what that's going to mean. So I do think people can be peeled off from that. And I think that's great. 
right? Because I think to do a big project like nuclear, you need people from all sides of everything on board. It's a long industrial project. We want it for our society. If it's just a factional partisan thing, it's never going to work. So I think some of those people can be convinced just because they don't know. But part of that assumption is that nature is this pure, innocent thing, much like our own childhoods, allegedly, (laughs) to both. And we need to maintain its purity by not sullying it with human endeavor. And in fact, you'll hear people say this, right? I I can't stand this language, but humans are the virus. I'm sure people (laughs) saw that language, right? When COVID broke out. Yeah. Right. I think extinction rebellion actually used that language, which is grotesque to me. I really just can't stand that. But anyway, my editorialisms aside, the fear that's going on there is that we will so damage things that we can never repair them Mm. and that we will never come back from this and that we can't figure out what to do next, right? This is sort of the apocalypticism. And also that you don't, if there are too many people, we're not going to have enough resources. I'm going to say we have unlimited resources, but I haven't seen the cap on it yet. And I don't think any of these people actually know what it is and other predictions ever come true. Their assumption is that there is something wrong or aberrant about human life and that it needs to be mitigated in order to maintain this pure invented idea of nature. Right. Mm. It's it's like a worship of nature or something. Yeah. It's like a worship of nature. So in my launch statement, I talk about it as like sort of a late Victorian return to childhood romanticism. Hmm. Right, that really has more to do with, I would say, a genteel wish to live in an effortless world. And that's just not reality. Reality takes a lot of work, it takes risk, it takes people, right? So I think where you and I are, because I think you and I are opposed to that ideology, Jimmy. I have yet to meet, by the way, a Bitcoiner who's a Malthusian. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I hope not. Yeah, I hope not. Is that we understand that there are problems. We're not Pollyannas, but we think that we can solve them and that we have to think about that and we have to get together and figure it out. Hmm. And that, in fact, it is our very consciousness, the thing that makes us creative, that is going to do that. Right? The thing that makes us special as humans. The reason why we want more humans on this earth, not fewer, is that very consciousness, that that is how we thrive together as a species. Now, I don't know a ton about Bitcoin, and that's fine. I own some, happy to, you know, but what I can say is that I don't know where it's going. People are working really hard on it, and that's exciting I have conversations with friends who are very into it. They have some interesting ideas. I have no idea where they're going, but I want that in the world. Mm. I want that. I think your viewpoint is profoundly optimistic. And I think the main difference, at least at a very visceral level, is that the Malthusians are ultimately very pessimistic about the future of humanity. And it is sort of, it has its roots in sort of like a nihilism a purposelessness to everything that, you know, like nature itself is good or something like that Mm -hmm. instead of human endeavor, human virtue. And that to me is the big failing. And I think that's what you're pointing out is that in a sense, like being anti-nuclear is in a sense being Malthusian, right? It's saying, hey, you know what? Like you're instead of, you know, figuring things out and trying and doing things and making stuff. You're essentially pro doing nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's a very strange, but kind of, it's a profoundly conservative, like, like literally conservative, conserve everything kind of mentality, which is strange because they call call themselves progressives. But yeah, it's very strange philosophically. It is, it is incredibly strange and confused. Mm-hmm. I think it is, there is a profound cultural philosophical confusion there. 
you know, and I see myself as in some ways conservative with my ideas of civic virtue and civic duty, but those are all in service of maintaining traditions in society to pass them down, which you have to do work to do and you have to have growth to do. Right. Like that's the way I think about it. Like, am I a progressive? I don't know because I don't know what that word means anymore because of the confusion you've just brought up. Well, words are very much sort of played around with these days where, you know, nothing means what it used to anymore. All right. So sort of final kind of question. Do you think nuclear makes a comeback in the next 10, 15 years? I think to some degree you've answered in the affirmative there, but to what degree do we nuclearize and how much of that sort of changes the you know way we look at energy going forward you know man i would love to say that it will just be like to the moon bro <laughs> with nuclear history is weird hard to predict people do all sorts of surprising things there was a nuclear renaissance in the 2010s then the fears around fukushima happened and then the natural gas revolution happened and that got put on hiatus so weird things can happen black swan events can happen but I do think nuclear is coming back. I think it will come back. And I personally think that we should generate all, if not most of our electricity from nuclear. I mean, you want to keep some things in the mix just to have them because having backups redundancies are good for something that you want to run literally all of the time, like the electricity grid. That's what I want. I hope that's where we're going. And I think we can definitely see some light on the horizon there. Hmm. Well, this has been an interesting conversation about nuclear, and I didn't expect it to dive into philosophy, but we kind of did. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Right. So I, you can find me on Twitter, at NukeBarbarian. I have a new podcast and newsletter. I'll also be doing some writing where I bring some more of this philosophical stuff into thinking about nuclear. That's nuclearbarbarians.substack.com. You can get all that right in your inbox. And if you're interested in sort of like a weirder, more meditative side that sometimes where I showcase a little bit of my pessimism, you can check out my other podcast, Exhaust, E-X-H-A-U-S-T, wherever you can find podcasts. That project has been a total joy to work on. It's very far ranging. So people might be interested in that, but that is where you can find me and my DMs are open. I'd love to hear from you guys if you have any more questions. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. This was really great. I appreciate it so much. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited about what they're building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Emmett Penny can be found at at NukeBarbarian on Twitter and NuclearBarbarians.substack.com. Until next time, fiat the lendest.